0: Let's further hear the word of God as we turn firstly in the Old Testament scriptures to 1 Samuel and chapter 7. The first book of Samuel and chapter 7. (coughs) 1 Samuel and chapter 7. Commencing to read at verse 1. 1 Samuel 7. And the men of Kirjath jerim came and fetched up the ark of the Lord... And brought it into the house of Abinadab in the hill, and sanctified Eliezer his son to keep the ark of the Lord. And it came to pass, while the ark abode in Kurgith-Jerim, that the time was long, for it was twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel spake unto all the house of Israel, saying, If ye do return unto the Lord with all your hearts. Then put away the strange gods and Ashtaroth from among you. And prepare your hearts unto the Lord. And serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Then the children of Israel did put away Balaam and Ashtaroth, And serve the Lord only. And Samuel said gather all Israel to Mizpah. And I will pray for you unto the Lord. And they gathered together to Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord. And fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel in Mizpah. When the Philistines heard that the children of Israel were gathered together to Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel And when the children of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the children of Israel said to Samuel, Cease not to cry unto the Lord our God for us, that he will save us out of the hand of the Philistines. And Samuel took a sucking lamb and offered it for a burnt offering, holy unto the Lord. And Samuel cried unto the Lord for Israel, and the Lord heard him. And as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day upon the Philistines and discomfited them. And they were smitten before Israel. And the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and smote them until they came under beth Then Samuel took a stone And set it between Mizpah and Shen, And called the name of it Ebenezer. Saying hitherto hath the Lord helped us. So the Philistines were subdued. And they came no more into the coast of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. All the days of Samuel. And the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel. (coughs) Were restored to Israel. From Ekron even unto Gath. And the coasts thereof did Israel deliver. Out of the hands of the Philistines. And there was peace between Israel. And the Amorites. And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went from year to year. In circuit to Bethel. And Gilgal. And Mizpah. And judged Israel in all those places. And his return was to Ramah. For there was his house, and there he judged Israel, and there he built an altar unto the Lord. And secondly, we turn on briefly to the New Testament Scriptures in the Gospel recorded by Luke, uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 15, and commencing to read at verse 11. That's Luke's Gospel, chapter 15, from verse 11. And he said, the Lord Jesus said, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. Not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country. And there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land. And he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country. And he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat. And no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said... How many hired servants of my fathers have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And, and the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, bring forth the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring hither the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Now his elder son was in the field, and as he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, Thy brother is come, and thy father hath killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. And he was angry and would not go in. Therefore came his father out and entreated him. And he answering said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee. Neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment, yet thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. And he said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad, for this thy brother was dead and is alive again. And was lost. And is found. Amen. May God bless his own word to us. And grant us each and every one. An understanding there. In his word. Well let us turn to God's word. Turn back to our passages. uh, That we've read here this evening. And especially we turn back to 1 Samuel. And chapter 7. uh, To 1 Samuel. And chapter 7. And. uh, By way of text, uh, we turn especially to the words at the end of verse 2. 1 Samuel chapter 7, and at the end of verse 2 we read this, And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Now this was something so remarkable and so amazing is exactly what's not happening today. And when you witness this sort of thing, it's truly wonderful. Because you know that God, in his sovereign power, is mightily at work. He is turning the hearts of people to himself. It's a very powerful expression, this. Uh, How did this change of heart come about? It's amazing, isn't it? You know, sometimes when there's a change... We're not really fully aware of it at the time. It's only afterwards we realise, yes, there was a a powerful change. Only a couple of weeks ago, my wife and I, we were paddling in the North Sea, in Northumberland. And uh, there was a gentle argument going on between us. Is the tide coming in or is it going out? And we couldn't resolve it. We, we, We were so unsure. There were conflicting signals. But an hour later, when we sat up on the cliff, we looked down. Yes, the tide was coming in all the time. The tide had turned. And so here in Israel's history, we see a turn of the tide. That all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. There was a longing for God. And all that that meant, this was the sovereign work of God. Uh, You can't put it down to anything else. Uh, Salvation is of the Lord. But as we turn to this passage, and especially the thought of this text here tonight, there are a number of things I want us to notice. First of all, we take a look at the tragedy of Israel's departure from God. Because the opening chapters of 1 Samuel deal with that. Uh, the, The appalling effects of turning from God. The tragedy of Israel's departure. Secondly, here in our text, the turning back. The turning back to God. And we want to reverently analyse that and, and, and see what it amounts to. Thirdly, the test of its reality. Because immediately, Samuel wants to know whether it's real or not. And so he puts the people to the test. More of that when we get that far. And then finally, the absolute triumph of Israel in her God. That's so amazing, isn't it? Have you noticed in the Old Testament history that when Israel win, (laughs) they win completely. It's not indecisive. The war in Ukraine has been going on over six months now. And it's still as unresolved as it was when it began. It's indecisive, isn't it? Uh, You know, you you can't tell uh, always how things are going. But when Israel won in the Old Testament in her God, the the, the victory was absolutely total uh, and unequivocal. There was no question about it at all. And that's what we see at the end of the chapter here this evening. So then, four points for us to consider in our meditation here uh, this evening. The tragedy Of Israel's departure, her turning back, the test that Samuel applies to it. And the final triumph that we see at the end. Chapter 7 here is an incredible contrast with chapter 4. One of the commentators, Dale Ralph Davis, uh, very uh, cleverly demonstrates how how chapter 4 and chapter 7 are so different. Uh, There's so much darkness in chapter 4. And there's so much light in chapter 7. But first of all, the tragedy of Israel's departure from her God. Now, as we look in the early chapters of 1 Samuel, I think we can draw out five uh, principal characters in the drama. I want us to look at three bad examples. Then I want us to look at two good examples. And I think these are the principal characters in in the drama, in the opening chapters uh, of 1 Samuel. The three bad ones, first of all. Well, I'll deal with the worst of them all to start with. But it just shows you what happens when uh, there is a departure from God, when a nation has lost its way. Here are two evil characters. (laughs) I call them horror comics. Hophni and Phinehas. And they're in charge of the worship of God in his house. Effectively, effectively, they're in control. And they're perverse, they're criminals. They're filthy men. And, and they're polluting the ministry of God at source by their behaviour. It's a bit like, you know, there's a fountain of pure water and somebody's poisoning it right, right at, the, at the top of the head. So that everything, everything is, is, is wrong uh, 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 about the religion. Well, we haven't got time to go into details tonight. But but they're in charge. They're in control. And that's very much like our society today, isn't it? Uh, because the people that, that call good evil and evil good are in control. Even if not outwardly, publicly, behind the scenes. Uh, that's... Uh, that's the spirit that's in control. Uh, so the, the amazing thing is this you know we, we, we wring our hands about how bad things are today but you see you've only got to go into the history of, of God's old covenant people to see how things were just as bad then. Who, who's the third one you might ask. The third one is a bit more of a debate there because it's off nine father Eli. Now, Eli, friends, was a man of God. And yet, tragically, we see how this man is powerless. He has no impact at all. Because he's completely compromised by the wickedness of his sons and by the general state of society uh, around him, he's completely powerless uh, to do any good. There was one really striking example of that Right at the beginning of 1 Samuel. Here is a woman. A lady called Hannah. It's amazing how all the great drama. And the great history. Of 1 Samuel. (laughs) eventually leads to the great kingdom of David. And it starts off with one, one woman. With a domestic issue. Amazing isn't it? Just one woman. With a domestic issue. But the thing is this. Is that. She's so desperate. So at the end of her tether with it all. She really prays. She really prays. And so you've got a scene in the temple of God. In God's house. Where somebody is actually breaking their heart before God. How long has it been since since that happened? How how long has that been since you've seen that sort of thing in God's house? Somebody breaking their heart, desperate for God's help. You know, if we saw a bit more of that, how different things would be. But the point I'm making is this. Is that Eli immediately misreads the signs. And he thinks she's drunk. He immediately assumes that, that, that she's drunk. It might be a pretty good comment on the general state of religion, that that that's what he immediately assumes. Uh, That that he doesn't see somebody who is heartbroken before God. Alright, it's cleared up after that, we we know that and sorted out wonderfully, but that's another story, we can't go into the Samuel story tonight, there's no time. But you see, it's an indicator isn't it, as to where that man is, always a man of God, but he's out of touch. He's out of tune. He's powerless and useless. And when God finally does speak. He has to speak for a little boy. little boy. Because nobody else can hear. Nobody else is in tune. With the word of God. And so is this little Samuel. In the temple. And God speaks to him. It's the only. Relative. Inverted commas. Innocent conduit for the truth to reach the people. That's how bad things are. It says the word of the Lord was precious in those days. It was rare. There was no open vision. The two other characters, the two good characters. One is Hannah, and I won't say too much more about her tonight because we, we just can't, we can't do it all. Who's the other one? Who's the other one? If you know you won Samuel, I'm actually thinking now, who's the other person? Well, the other person, we don't even know her name. But she's Eli's daughter-in-law. And we witness in her a tragic scene. Terrible scene. She's dying in childbirth. Frequent thing in those days, you know. Uh, Didn't have all the wonders of modern medicine and, uh, you know, emergency hospital... Attention was unknown. The mortality rate and the death of mothers was not not, a, not an uncommon thing. But the people round her bedside were trying to encourage her, trying to comfort her, saying, "Look, look, you, you've got you got a man child, a little boy. You, you should be, you know, pleased and proud." And then she says something which is so. Untypical of a woman giving birth. She, she took no notice of it at all. The word says she didn't regard it. Why? Why? Because here is a woman who, who sees what's happening. Who is, is who who is uh, as it were, uh, in a position to, uh, to see right from wrong. And the child is called... Mercifully, not many people are called that name nowadays. In Puritan times, it wasn't unknown. The child was called Ichabod. And do you know what Ichabod means? It's not just a joke name. It's something terribly appalling and serious. It means the glory has departed. God has gone. So what's the use of anything else? That's what she was saying. God has gone. The ark has been taken. Uh, uh, and death is on every side. Uh, the vital thing is though God has gone. And therefore there's this awful sense of despair and hopelessness. No joy in anything anymore. Because God has gone. Mercifully that's not the end of the story. But that's the way it looks. That's the way it looks. It looks as if God has gone. And you notice this about Hannah and this unnamed lady. What they both have in common. They're both on their own. Have you noticed that? Uh, with regard, if you, if you study what little it says about them. The thing is, the thing is this. Nobody shares with them. Nobody's sharing Hannah's joy. And nobody's sharing the sorrow of the other woman. With Hannah is her husband, Elkanah. You know, he's a decent enough chap. And he's, he's done right by her in a very unsatisfactory sort of marriage situation. Uh, in polygamy, it makes all sorts of problems. Uh, and we know, of course, in Christian terms, that can never be the case. But the thing thing is this: you you, you see, Elkanah says, "Well, you know, am I not better to you than ten sons?" He keeps lavishing gifts on her, keeps giving her presents. But of course, he doesn't see the point, does he? All the presents in the world uh, can't make up for this sense that God is against me, and God. Uh, has turned his face from me, and so that's what we see here. And with regard to the other woman, the other woman, they're trying to comfort her, uh, but as they do so, uh, it has no effect at all. And so, in a sense, in days of darkness like this, the Christian is often by himself, uh, and there's no one to share either his joy or his sorrow. And uh, it's like one of the Proverbs says, The heart knoweth its own bitterness, and a stranger intermeddleth not with the joy. That's the situation. There's the tragedy of Israel's departure from her God. We see the effects uh, when a people turn from God. But now, secondly, let's take a look at the turning back. We come right back in on our text again here. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. You know, many years ago, well, not when I was very much a young man myself, uh, there was a a dear older minister, who's been long in glory now. And he used to love to say about repentance, because in many ways this is what we're looking at tonight, isn't it? He used to love to say this about repentance. You know, he, he says, men say that repentance is a, horrible sort of gloomy miserable sort of thing you know where people uh, start you know moaning and groaning and and it's all doom and gloom but he says it's nothing of the sort it's a blessed thing when men repent it's a wonderful thing a glorious thing when men repent you know we've read that wonderful story tonight haven't we in Luke chapter 15 isn't it a remarkable story such an economy of words that the lord uses but every word is so telling isn't it that amazing story of the restoration of that lad to his family it's a powerful illustration isn't it of the blessedness of repentance because it's a win-win when men really repent think about and it's lovely it's Fascinated to trace the very point at which that young man's life started to change. Here he is, the Jewish lad in the pigsty. Couldn't be in a worse place, could it? He? And he's half starved as well. Everything is thumbs down. It's all an awful situation. And the word says how he begins to come to himself. Isn't that telling? Because so far there's been uh, been a madness on him. A rage. A fever. Uh, uh, And he's coming to... uh, He started to see things the right way. And what does he focus on? What does he focus on? Well, first of all, he focuses on how things are back home. He visualises how things are back home. He focuses upon his old dad. What a lovely old fella he is. And uh, you see how he feels. You see, you see, something good is starting to happen now, isn't it? And he says, you know, th- there's these nobodies, th- there's these casuals layabouts in the marketplace, possibly up to no good. And his old dad goes among them and he says, he says, 'Come come on, fella, you, 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 you look as if you need a, a square meal and a decent day's work. Come up to the farm. Go to the kitchen. You know, the, the missus will, will, will give you a bite to eat and something to drink and then come out and work on the field. And I'll see you get a wage at the end of the day. And these are nobodies. Any Tom, Dick or Harry off the street. And he says, that's how my dad is with them. What am I doing here? What am I doing here? He says, I've forfeited all possible recognition as a son anymore. I, I can't look upon myself as a—I've—I've—I've I, I've really ruined that. But I know He'll accept me on that basis, as one of His hired servants. I can go back under those terms. Well, you know, I won't insult your intelligence. You know what happens, don't you? When He goes back, there's no more talk. There's no more talk of hired servants when He goes back. And uh, it's, it's wonderful, isn't it, to see his old father. His old father's full of joy. And he infectiously spreads it round everywhere because it says at the end of the first part of the story, and they began to be merry. And that's not merry in a modern sense of the word. They were they not weren't inebriate. But the, 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 it was a, a joyous experience. And the, the only odd one out was the elder brother who wouldn't go in he stood outside with a po face and he you well, wouldn't have any of it but he, he, was, he was you know uh, he was robbing himself of, 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 of joy uh, because this is the point the old man keeps driving home I once heard a minister preach from, from this passage and he, he, he did a bit of fantasising like me uh, and he imagined uh, the old man You know, people talking behind his back, the other people in the village. You know, the wise acres in the village saying, silly old fool. Been taken in again by that no good son of his. And he he envisages the old man turning around on these people. But don't you understand? He was dead. And he's alive again. He was lost. And I found him again. Just shows you the sort of mind that's out of the secret, doesn't it? Uh, and so how wonderful that story is. And it, it it expresses, doesn't it? The blessedness of repentance. What, what, a, what a wonderful thing it is when men turn back to God. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord their God. Lamented after the Lord. And that is a very strong expression. It means... To lament with lamentation. They were desperate for God. I think we'd be overwhelmed. Well, we would be overwhelmed if that happened in Hemel Hempstead tonight. We couldn't cope, could we? How could we begin to handle that? It's a bit like what happened in Hezekiah's day, you know, when there was this tremendous turning to the Lord in northern Israel, and they were all invited down to Jerusalem. To the Passover. And the poor old priests and the Levites. They couldn't cope. They couldn't handle it. But it was a genuine turning to God. So that the king was able to pray for them all. And you know. And sort the whole thing out. The good Lord pardon everyone. Even though they be not purified. According to the, uh, the purification of the sanctuary. Uh, and that was a blessed day as well. Uh, you know. It, 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 full of joy and happiness. And they began to be merry. What a lovely expression that is, isn't it? They began. They only, only just started. They only just started. Uh, it's a wonderful thing when men turn back to God. Uh, there's nothing bad about it at all, it, it, there's nothing but good. We must hasten on. Thirdly, the test of its reality. Come back to the text and what does verse 3 say? And Samuel spake unto all the house of Israel, saying, If ye do return unto the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the strange gods and Ashtaroth from among you. Then we read in verse 4, Then the children of Israel did put away Balaam and Ashtaroth and serve the Lord only. Now friends, this is very telling. And, and there's almost as much of a miracle recorded In verse 4. As there was in verse 2. Samuel put them to the test. And he says. If you really mean it. Then you've got to drop. All the bad things. That you're doing. Now. Sometimes we get. I don't know. You might get a funny idea. About heathen worship. You might think it's all terrible. And blood curdling. And. And all the rest of it, well, certain aspects of it were. But, you know, the natural man wouldn't go for it unless there was pleasure there. Now, I'm not going to go into details here. Uh, it would be me to, to, uh, to uncover too much. But it's simply enough to say, isn't it, that Balaam is the male god and Ashtaroth is the female god. So it doesn't take too much imagination... To realise what was going on in these places. Therefore it was all the more remarkable. To see people kicking the habit. And dropping it. And genuinely turning to God. Some sins especially are addictive. They get hold of people. So that people can't let them go. Certain forms of sexual sin are powerfully addictive. Especially the younger people are. They're addictive. That much is in evidence, isn't it? Look at the abuse of, of the media in this respect. You know, what people can do on their laptops would have been unthinkable uh, science fiction a generation ago. But you see it's the modern equivalent isn't it? What a hard thing that is to drop and to kick. But the wonderful thing here friends is this is they did it. Threw their laptops in the in the river. End. End of story. We're going to turn from it. And so you see this tremendous uh, this tremendous result. The, the, the repentance was real. They weren't just having these oh, long, longings after God in a purely emotional sense. They really meant it with all of their heart. Because they wanted God. And they wanted his ways. And not the way of sin. Fourthly. And lastly, the triumph at the end of it all. You know, it's a remarkable thing. I mentioned this, didn't I, to start with. This tremendous theme of, uh, of, um, of Israel's victory. You know, I think of Israel's first ever victory as a nation. What was that? You know, I'm not, I'm not delving back now when there were just a, a, a tiny handful of people, just an overgrown family, but when they became visible as a nation in the world for the first time, and that was on that great night of the Passover, uh, when uh, they were separated forever from from the Egyptians, and the Lord led them out with a strong hand, and they became visible as a nation to the world. Uh, and, and what had made them into a nation? It, it, was, it was what happened at the Passover, Uh, and rightly so, it's so central uh, to Jewish history, isn't it, the Passover. It's what made them into a people. Apart from saving them, it, it defined them as a people, visibly. But look at that first great victory again with me for a moment. Here they are, they're on the farther shore of the Red Sea, and what do they see? They haven't lifted a finger. There's not a weapon among them to fight the Egyptians. But they're on the further banks of the sea. And they watch the entire military might of the one superpower in the world of that day. They, They watch it dissolve in front of their eyes. So there's nothing left of it. What a thing to see. An amazing thing to see. You know, the entire military might of that nation was drowned in the, in the bottom of the sea. And the Lord could say, what Egyptians that you've seen today, you'll never you see them again. They're finished. Kaput. The victory is total. And of course, that's so symbolical of uh, the believer's victory in the Lord. Uh, you, you know, it's it's it, Paul says, "Thanks be unto God, which giveth us the victory." We are more than conquerors uh, through Him that loved us. It's overkill. That's how great the victory is at last. You know, it's a tremendous con- contrast. I said there was a contrast, didn't I, between chapter four and chapter seven? I'll just share this with you before we bring this part of the the proceedings to a close. Chapter 4 shows us how Israel is completely smitten by the Philistines. Chapter 7 puts it the other way around. The Philistines are completely smitten by Israel. They're, they're, they're convincingly, devastatingly defeated. And one very telling difference between chapter 4 and chapter 7 is this. In chapter 4, Israel do a very silly and a very wicked thing. They're fighting the Philistines. And they "Ah, I know what we'll do. We'll bring in the Ark of the Covenant. And that will that, 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 scare the, the daylights out of the Philistines. And it will give us a great advantage. Let's bring in the big guns. Let's bring in the Ark of the Covenant. And they say a very telling thing. Maybe it, it, I-T, it, will help us. And that's exactly where they were wrong. They thought they could use God's furniture uh, against their enemies. And no way, because the Ark was taken. Uh, and, well, we've already seen uh, what that woman said in, in dying. Uh, that, 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 that was a terrible humiliating and devastating defeat for Israel. But now in chapter 7, we've all read it tonight, they're not asking the ark to help them anymore. They're asking Samuel to ask the Lord. They've come back to God. They've not just come back to religion. They've come back to God. With incredible uh, effect. But... The last contrast between chapter 4 and chapter 7 is the greatest of all. If there are two words, it's not much for us to get our heads around, is it? Two words, that, uh, uh, one word that, that sums up chapter 4 and a word that sums up chapter 7 and, that, and one of them completely blocks out the other. Now the one word we've already had in, uh, from chapter 4 is this, Ichabod. The glory has departed. God has gone. Now, what does Samuel do on the victory? Gets this great big stone and plants it between the villages of Mizpah and Shen. And what does he call that stone? Ebenezer. Ebenezer. The stone of hell. Because he says, hitherto hath the Lord helped us. In a sense, he's, he's, he's rising above the dreadful words of that poor woman as she died because he's saying, really, he says, the Lord has been with us all the time. He's always been there for us. He's always been there for us. Even in the dark times, even when his anger and wrath were so apparent, the Lord has always been there. For his people. The promise had been made to the fathers, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. And so, though it seemed to be darkest night, yet really the light of the Lord had shone above it all. You know, sometimes in these darkening skies, well, we haven't had much of that just lately because it's been wall to wall sunshine. Uh, But you know what our climate's like in these islands. And sometimes it can be so overcast and so dark. But above it all, the sun shining all the time. But you know, that hasn't changed at all. Uh, And so that's exactly what we see at work here. May we know what it is to mourn after the Lord. And to turn to the Lord. And may the Lord yet grant us to see... What we see at the end of verse 2, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. May the Lord bless his word to us. Amen.